This is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, July the 29th, 2023, the last Saturday in July, a sleepy July. And what else to do on a Saturday? Uh, summer Saturday, but talk international crime and dirty money and the mafia. We've been doing that a lot recently on the show. I had um, Matt Burke back on the show. He has a new book out recently, The Life We Choose, about his access to a man called William Big Belly Delia and the last secrets of America's most powerful mafia family. We've done shows on the history of American uh, police in terms of confronting uh, the mafia, one with Paul Moses. Um, we've done one show a couple of weeks ago, a really interesting one, with uh, a Mexico City-based um, journalist, uh, Deborah Bonella, on the rise of women in Latin American drug cartels. She has a new book out, Narcas, The Secret Rise of Women in Latin American Cartels. And at the same time, we've done lots of shows over the last few years on Dirty Money, one with my favorite Dirty Money writer, Olivia uh, uh, Oliver Bullo. Um, he has a new book out, uh, Butler to the World, about London as the center of dirty money. And of course, no conversation about dirty money would be complete without reference to Vladimir Putin's Russia. Uh, we've had Catherine Belton. Um, another very brave journalist who was actually sued by Putin, uh, talking about what she calls KGB capitalism, her book, Putin's People, how the KGB took back Russia and then took on the West is, I think, in many ways, a classic treatment of, of all the issues and problems associated with this. So dirty money, crime, international syndicates, it's all brought together in our conversation today with Miles Johnson. Another FT journalist, it seems as if the FT are grooming uh, journalists who focus in this area. He has a new book out, Chasing Shadows, a true story of drugs, war, and the secret world of international crime. Miles is joining us from a sleepy East Sussex. He's normally based in North London. Uh, Miles, congratulations on the new book. It's out uh, in the UK already or next week. Uh, and it will be out next year in the U.S. Uh, this book, as we were saying earlier, it's it, it, it's so unbelievable that one would expect it to be fiction, but it's actually true. Very briefly, tell me what Chasing Shadows is about, this bringing together of the worlds of dirty money and international crime. So I suppose you could say at the heart of the book, it is a bottoms up book rather than a sort of top down one. So it's looking at people and their lives who are sort of living in this criminal kind of underworld in great detail. And as it says in the title, you know, there's a big focus on sort of this war in the background and war and conflict is this great accelerant of crime. You know, wars are expensive and, you know, uh, they evolve infrequently in modern conflicts. You know, they have lots of, um, not, not 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 always just states which are involved and so they need to sort of find ways to raise cash you know find weapons you know new ways to raise revenues and so it creates these unlikely alliances and so this is a book that sort of goes deep into that world through the sort of lives of the people who are living inside it 
Uh, it deals uh, with the Syrian civil war, all sorts of other wars. How did you yourself, you seem a very respectable FT journalist, uh, uh, Miles, how did you get involved in this? I know you, this is in a sense your beat for the FT, but how did you stumble on this remarkable story? I, the roots of this reporting actually started when I was um, working as a foreign correspondent for the FT in Rome. And I was writing increasingly a lot about the Italian mafia. And I started to notice that there was this quite big transformation happening in um, the European criminal economy. So, you know, there are these criminal groups in Europe, which are obviously internationally famous, sort of embedded in Western culture in a way, like, you know, like the Sicilian, you know, Cosa Nostra and stuff. Everyone sort of knows what that is. But what's sort of happened over the last um, sort of 10 to 15 years is there's been this real explosion in, um, you know, quite really dangerous and um, very sophisticated and wealthy organized criminal groups operating in Europe. And um, that's been fueled by cocaine trafficking. You know, so Europe has become one of, if not almost the most important um, cocaine market in the world, which I think people kind of find surprising. And in Rome, you know, and covering the Italian mafia, you start to see if you start following the sort of uh, the alliances and the money from these sorts of groups, you see how international they are and how transnational, how, you know, these are sort of organizations which are really connected into this sort of shadow economy. Yeah, it's it's globalization, neoliberalism, run amok outside the law. You you, you have a, a very moving piece I found in the FT today, how a southern Italian crime family's reign ended in tragedy. It begins with the tragic death of a completely innocent young child in a drive-by shooting in Sicily. Tell me about this piece and how it connects with uh, Chasing Shadows. So the book is uh, split um, into three sort of narrative blocks and they um, kind of rub up against each other and interact in certain ways. And one of the key ones is uh, about this Italian mafia family who are not, you know, they're from Calabria. So they're not, they're not um, a Sicilian family. They, they basically were, uh, came of age really in the sort of transition from the Sicilian mafia, which was, you know, hugely powerful and wealthy and dangerous in um, the 1980s and 1990s. But in the 1990s, the Italian state really started to crack down on the Sicilian mafia and started to um, take it to pieces, really. And the Sicilian mafia today is a, basically a shadow of its former self. But that left this gap in the market, effectively, where there's this region in Italy. It's the sort of toe of the boots of Italy called Calabria. And the Calabrian um, criminal families who had sort of pretty much gone broadly unnoticed until around, you know, maybe the turn of the millennium, they really started to take this opportunity and muscle in and sort of take over relationships with Latin American cartels and start to make vast amounts of money from drugs trafficking. And the family who I focus on, they're not a top tier family. They're not a big, massive, super powerful family. They're a sort of aspirational crime family who have, they rule over a small town in Calabria and they see the families around them, you know, in the bigger cities, in the region, you know, getting really rich and really powerful. And they Yeah, as you say, um, and, um, in the piece, uh, hmm. he was taking an enormous risk. This is one of the characters in the piece, but that was his chance. No more middlemen, no more disruptions to supply. His sons could become heirs to an actual empire. Almost sounds like Silicon Valley. Well, I mean, this is a this was a sort of based on a to a certain extent a kind of critical business insight, which is that 
um, what happened in the sort of global cocaine market was um, you had obviously the extremely famous, you know, Latin American cartels, Mexican cartels who were shipping into the United States and you had a US law enforcement response. And so that, you know, it didn't stop the drugs trade, but it definitely made it more risky, more annoying for um, uh, cartels to be sending their drugs into the United States. And also, if you're the Colombian cartels, you had to go through the Mexicans because effectively the Mexicans control, you know, more or less control, um, you know, the key, you know, sort of logistics and um, real estate in terms of controlling the border. So <clears throat> you had this situation where people realized quite quickly that the price of cocaine in Europe is much higher wholesale than it is in the United States. So if you're a Colombian cartel, you can start shipping to Europe and start selling it for two or three times the price. And um, this opportunity also created an opportunity for organized criminals in Europe who could sort of seize on that and um, exploit the sort of growing willingness and interest of these groups in Latin America to ship their product into Europe. And that's where Salvatore sort of uh, enters into this. Uh, and, and speaking of that, I know this isn't in the book, but one of the headlines this week is of the former intelligence leader in Hugo Chavez's Venezuela being extradited from Spain to the US to face drug charges. This could have been, I know it isn't, but this could have been a chapter in your book. Well, it's interesting that, um, you know, part the other one of the other sort of third of the book is on um, a DEA agent called Jack Kelly, uh, who was sort of working these cases into this international money laundering and drugs trafficking. And I spoke to a lot of DEA colleagues of his, a lot of people who'd worked in these cases, and they were some of them were very, very focused on Venezuela and um, really worked those cases. And it was a really important thing for them. So is are people like. Oliver Bullo, and I know, I'm sure you know him, and you certainly know his work, and Catherine Belton. Are they right that, that you have this merging uh, of state, state thuggish capitalism and the mafia? Is it all coming together in one horribly bloody mess? I think they are absolutely right because I think. There's obviously a sort of framing of that issue through, um, you know, as you said earlier in the show, sort of the ultimate um, kind of gangster capitalist in the form of Vladimir Putin. And that's a hugely important part of that. But more broadly, you have um, a situation where the sort of geop geopolitical moment where the world is becoming more fragmented and more multipolar and you have things like sanctions, you know, sanctions create the necessity for crime. You know, if you sanction a government or an organization and they, they still want to operate, they now have to commit crime and find sort of procurement cells and other sort of things to continue, you know, moving money around, procuring items. And so you have a fascinating moment now where you have this rise of these sort of state-backed criminal organizations. And that could be, you know, North Korean hacking armies, you know, sort of hacking into central banks or hacking Bitcoin, um, you know, wallets and things. Or you have private armies in the form of, you know, Yevgeny Prigozhin's Wagner Group, you know, which is designated by the United States government as a transnational criminal organization, but is also a geopolitical player. It is also, you know, a man who is speaking with Vladimir Putin and dispatching troops to the front line in Ukraine. So it's a, I think it's a reflection of the world we are in. Yeah, and I want to get to Prisigan uh, later. You've, you've written a lot about him, and it's really interesting. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's not really fragmentation, Miles, is it? It's fragmentation within globalization. So we're not going back to a fragment. I mean, we're not going back to an isolated world, but it's, it's, a, fragment, it's a fragmentation within 
globalization. But let's go back to the book. You've introduced a couple of characters from the book. Um, uh, one wannabe uh, mafia Don, Salvatore Pitino. Um, and then there's uh, Jack Kelly, a veteran U.S. Enforcement Administration uh, officer, agent. The third guy in the book is somebody called Mustafa uh, Badreddin. T tell me about him and, and how, how all these guys fit together in your narrative. Yeah, so Mustafa Badreddin is a fascinating character um, who has always been overshadowed by his far more famous cousin, um, Imad Bugnir, who was, um, is basically the most celebrated um, uh, sort of operative for Hezbollah, the Lebanese um, political movement and terrorist group. And so Mustafa and Imad started out at the same time in um, the early 1980s, pretty much pulling off these um, really bloody and horrific and uh, terrorist attacks, such as the Marine Barracks bombing in 1983. And to understand how he fits into this story is that you have to flash forward, you know, several decades forward into um, the Syrian civil war, where during the Syrian civil war, you had, um, you know, the Assad regime was basically at certain points teetering on the brink of collapse. Uh, that conflict is more famous, you know, uh, to lots of people in the West for the involvement of ISIS. But uh, Hezbollah played an important role. You know, they were basically brought in by Assad to uh, try and defend him. And, um, the people in the DEA who are featured in this book, they started to look into around that time, a lot of criminal cases which were springing up, which showed uh, sort of procurement cells linked to Hezbollah and other, other sort of organizations involved in that conflict, sort of engaging in money laundering and other types of illicit activity to sort of procure weapons and money to basically fund that war because it was extremely expensive. You know, you take a sort of effectively a paramilitary group which is used to doing small operations um and then you suddenly put them into a large battle they need a lot of money and so mustafa badradin was actually the commander in charge of hezbollah troops um in syria up until 2016 um when he was killed so that he sort of comes into this um in that broad sense but there's also a lot of uh, specific stuff in particular criminal cases which relate directly to his family and people close to him which are really fascinating a uh, one headline of the book suggests that um uh it's a farce what you're covering uh, the headline is when hezbollah sold drugs to the mafia how much of a farce is that how competent and organized are these people or is it just a kind of hobbesian world of complete anarchy and violence and and, and, and as a consequence, incompetence, rather like the Syrian civil war, perhaps. Yeah, I think that's a pretty apt description. I think um, there is a farcical element to it, which is important because the, the, the technical aspect of this is that a lot of this book is constructed through judicial evidence and wiretap evidence, um, where you have uh, the ability in certain cases to really map the lives of some of these people because they're being surveilled and recorded the entire time. And so you get to see the sort of day-to-day -day banalities of these people's lives. It's not in your, in the paradigm, the sort of archetype of a criminal sort of boss or mastermind is someone who's always in control and is, you know, really competent and, you know, surveils all yeah, around. You read, uh, and actually the reality read, uh, is much more Matt chaotic. Book, the Life We Choose, Big Belly, Delia, maybe that's the type. The old mafia don, who's yeah, I haven't read that one yet. I could see him inviting a journalist to actually interview him. I'm guessing these people wouldn't have that kind of confidence. 
No, well, a lot of them are either dead or in, in prison. But um, you see the, you know, in their day-to-day -day lives, there's a lot of chaos. And there's a lot of, you know, effectively, these are, especially in the case of, um, you know, drug traffickers, these are people who are trying to sort of shape the reality around them. And they're taking big risks. And they're just trying to sort of get it through. They're trying to um, pull off things which are really difficult and sort of beyond them, you know, where organizing a massive transatlantic cocaine deal is really, really difficult. And you're often dealing with sometimes quite incompetent people and you have to deal with them. So, you you know, you, the, the other side, you know, the cartel might send a complete idiot over from Colombia to stay with you in Italy. And he's the sort of point man for the deal. And he's a moron, but you have to deal with him and you have to sort of go through all of these these issues. And um, there's just frequently a lot of screw ups and a lot of um, a lot of sort of false starts and problems and also sort of like tensions. And it's also reflective of that world where it's not like the legitimate business world. You can't really fire someone that easily. Um, you know, often when people are fired, it's very final, um, you know, in the sense that they're, they're killed. And um, you can't sue people to enforce contracts. So you have to do bizarre things to come up with quite crude ways of keeping the other side honest. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a world that Tarantino kind of imagined, isn't it? Um, of, of, of thugs completely out of control, but in, in, incompetent thugs. Uh, you note in your uh, FD piece that it's not just a farce, it's a tragic farce because there are lots of innocent casualties, not just children being gunned down by mistake, but girlfriends and families. How bloody and how tragic is all this, Miles? How, how many people are actually, I mean, on... aside from the, the, the drug traffickers and the other kinds of criminals shooting each other, how many innocents get dragged into all this? I mean, I think it's unspeakably bloody and tragic on a on a global scale, and it's um, you know something which is almost unfathomable in how large uh, that level of human suffering is. And I think that's one of the real difficulties of writing about this area, and why uh, the way I sort of chose to approach it was by looking at it through very specific stories and lives of people in particular circumstances um, and following them, because you you can't really you know when you're faced with such a huge um, human cost you know you, it's sort of um almost impossible to capture you know i think it's um in this case you by focusing on these particular lives these terrible incidents and decisions i think it um it's not to humanize them to excuse them but it helps to uh, at least sort of root the problem in a particular context in a particular place um through these lives we've done shows on the dark web but what you're really introducing us to is is a dark underworld a physical underworld an analog underworld not a digital one of illegal immigration of women of prostitution of illegal cash and drugs um tell me about the woman you feature in in this ft piece there are some photographs some very moving photographs as well um fr from uh, from the article uh why did you choose to write about her but she's actually a really important protagonist in the story for of the petito family or you know, this mafia Russian, family really? so basically you know they're a family she's right. ukrainian so you know she she is someone who arrives in italy you know around the turn of the millennium and she doesn't have any um legal immigration status or a job or a house or a car or anything and she she meets this man salvatore who sort of takes a very you know close interest in her and she basically moves to his small near his small town and they begin an affair and 
Salvatore is clearly a very important person in his community. People are intimidated by him and scared of him, but she doesn't entirely understand what he does. And it's clearly that people, you know, clear that people are scared of him. They listen to him. He warns other people off, you know, going near her. And he begins this affair. They start this affair. And he puts her up in a flat and he brings people to her flat, you know, business associates and they whisper and they speak in codes. And he's always terrified of being recorded or surveilled. And he says these bizarre things that don't make any sense to her. And over time, it becomes clear to her that, yes, he's involved in organized crime. And also over time, he starts to sort of slowly confess more things to her, let her into more secrets. He, he discusses his day with her, you know, so when he's had something bad has happened in his life, you know, someone has screwed up or done something, you know, stupid, lost money or done something annoying. He will tell her about it because he's like any other sort of person coming home from a bad day at work. And so she starts to build up this increasingly detailed picture of his life and um, his worries and concerns and dreams. And he starts to confess to her really serious crimes. And, you know, and so she sees everything. And she is basically in a situation where she is trapped. You know, he is a violent man. He, he beats her. He does horrible, you know, her, um, you know, really horrific things. But she also can't get away. And so she is sort of stuck in this position as to a certain extent, she is a she is a protagonist in this criminal operation, but she is also very much a victim. And her role in the story is decisive. So let's go back to this story. I don't want you to give away the full story because we want people to read the book, Chasing Shadows, a true story of drugs, war, and the secret world of international crime. It brings together all sorts of different characters from different parts of the world. Very briefly, is there a central narrative where all these three people actually come together in the same room, the same plot, the same murder, the same uh, drug smuggling operation? And so these people, they, the central thing that connects them is money, is criminal criminal cash moving around the world. You know, so basically, if you're uh, if you're a drugs you're you're a drug dealer in Europe or a drugs trafficker, and you want to buy a massive amount of cocaine, you know, you there's the obvious thing is you know the cocaine is being shipped from Latin America in a container ship to a port. You know, and that's relatively tangible, easy to understand. The logistical problem you have is you need to ship money. You need to pay for those goods and ship the money back to Latin America. And that's actually quite hard. And so to do that, there are these sort of service providers in the criminal underworld who launder money. And in this case, you know, a lot of European criminals ended up laundering money through gangs who were sort of moving the money through Middle Eastern banks and Lebanese so these banks. Are the, the, the and banks of the underworld, money... no, no doubt, lots of it is in cryptocurrency. Um, it, well, weirdly, it's sort of the thing you mentioned about technology is really interesting because, you know, this is definitely modern organized crime is very much enabled by technology in the sense that, you know, you have things like encrypted communications, which until very recently were really problematic for police because they sort of meant that they were, you know, flying in the dark. It allowed people to run criminal organizations from Dubai or, you know, they could they could run a network doing huge amounts of sort of uh, business in Europe and they don't even need to be in Europe. And that was obviously impossible 20 years ago. And it was especially impossible to do it in a secure way. But paradoxically, technology makes them weak because, you know, it allows once law enforcement can crack that, then it makes you very, very vulnerable. And you're seeing all these cases in Europe now where they crack into these encrypted phone networks and suddenly they have the entire 
picture. You know, they have the entire chat history of someone ordering a murder or ordering a shipment of, of drugs and all these things. So it's actually the um, analog element of it makes it more, the less technologically sophisticated it is, in a way it's more, it's, it's much more difficult for the police to crack. Um, and so in terms of the money, often it can just be, you know, one of the things which I found really interesting when I was talking to investigators about this is they, they said, you know, the key insight for them was that the money in a way never actually moves. You know, you have money in one location and someone else wants money in another location. They don't physically move the money. They sort of swap it on a sort of trust-based system. And so that becomes extremely difficult to, to, to track for police. Um, uh, there are no accounts, there are no audits. There's no um, way of um, figuring that stuff out very easily. Seems almost like a, a globalized version of, of Lebanon, complete anarchy, uh, shadows everywhere. Your book is called Chasing Shadows. You mentioned that the one of the central characters in the book, the the woman is uh, the, the girlfriend of, of, of the the Italian wannabe mafia leader um, is from Ukraine. We've done lots of shows on Ukraine. Some people argue it's a return to the Second World War one way or the other. But my guess is, and you've written a lot about this and given a lot of thought to it, is that the struggle in Ukraine and what's happening there is a reflection of a new world, not an old world. Is that fair? I know that the book focuses on the Syrian civil war of 2015, but is the Ukrainian war an extension of that in the way it empowers and enables gangsters of one kind or another? I think uh, very much, you know, the, 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 the book... Part of the sort of element of the backdrop of the Syrian civil war, which, you know, was an extremely complicated conflict, but it was, I think, an important geopolitical moment in terms of how it um, set the tone for things like what has happened in Ukraine. Um, I think, you know, it was it's fairly consensus view that uh, it emboldened Vladimir Putin. I mean, he, he, he surely gained confidence from being able mm. to go into Syria and seeing the Western response. But it, um, you know, has also just allowed, um, you know, if you were going to write a long history of the 20th century, you might end it in 2015, 2016, because it was a mm. moment when geopolitically the West decided not to act. And some people might have interpreted that as weakness. But I think that that was an important shift in terms of how things were happening in, in the world and the, the established global order. And so this 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 sort of chaotic moment is reflected in the criminal underworld. And in terms of what's happening in Ukraine, I think clearly uh, uh, you know, this, what has happened in Syria, at least in the, the, the attitude of world leaders, has played a big, big part in that. And that's why I was actually quite surprised at the unified Western response, because I thought when it first, when the invasion first occurred, it was more likely that we were just going to see a repeat of what happened in 2014 after Crimea and to a certain extent a repeat of what we saw in, in Syria. Yeah, we did a show with Joby Warwick. I'm sure you're familiar with his work. Um, he works for the Washington Post. He wrote a book called Red Line, and I think he's very much in your camp, certainly in the way in which Putin tried out Ukrainian tactics or what became Ukrainian tactics in in Syria. Um, and I wonder whether, and you've done a lot of writing on this. Um, we, you mentioned him earlier. Um, Yevgeny uh, Prigozhin, the uh, the head of the, I don't know, is it the Wagner or Wagner, Wagner Group? How do you pronounce it? I say Wagner. You say Wagner, say I say Wagner. Wagner. Well, we all know what we're talking about. This mafia style, almost uh, warlord leader who, 
has played a very, very important role in the Ukrainian conflict and then recently got involved in a, what seems to be a conflict with Putin, but who knows? You've done a lot of writing on this. How does uh, somebody like uh, Prigozhin and, uh, and the Wagner Group, how does it fit in to the broader narrative here? Well, very much so, because Prigozhin, at essence, is a criminal entrepreneur. Right. You know, he is a businessman who runs a trans transnational criminal organization. You know, it, to an extent, it's a mini multinational. You know, he has natural resources interests in, um, you know, in Sudan and Central African Republic. And he is um, very focused on making money. And war is obviously a way for him to make money if you run a mercenary group wars are good for you you get paid um and so he's obviously trans you know his his public persona has been transformed since the ukraine conflict and he continues i think to surprise everyone um but he is very much a modern modern gangster in the sense that he is he is firstly he is backed by a state you know he is he is a someone whose sort of roots are in the st petersburg criminal underworld and he now you know is a sort of tool of asymmetric warfare and um, Russian foreign policy, or at least was, you know, before uh, more recent developments. So I think Prigozhin encapsulates the modern state-backed gangster and very much plays into the themes in this book. You say he's state-backed, but can't we turn that around and suggest that he's backing the state and that he stood up to the state, he stood up to Putin, he survived, who knows what's really happening? But does a lot of this reflect the weakness of the 21st century state and the rise of these warlords, a, a return to a kind of feudalism, a 21st century feudalism? Well, I think there's sort of different elements of that. So when I say state-backed, uh, to a certain extent, I'm sometimes just talking about logistics, you know, in terms of, you know, Russian Ministry of Defense flights flying his people out to... Uh, to places in Africa or, you know, from um, Syria. But um, in terms of his, it does reveal a fragility uh, to a certain extent, but that's, you know, there's certain elements which are specific, very specific to the situation in Russia and the Russian state. Uh, but it does show that governments become reliant in different ways on criminals in a way where they have more complex networks of people working for them, which are not sort of just can't just be put in the camp of being, uh, you know, in the sort of intelligence services or military. And I think that's reflected everywhere. You see this in Syria, you know, the sort of the rise of the Syrian um, narco state and uh, where you have a gray area between what is a state um, activity and what is not a state activity. And I think that's also reflective of you know, strong men or the sort of modern breed of mm. dictators we have, where it's hard to separate them from the state and where that sort of begins and ends. Yeah, and that's reflected in this Venezuelan story um, where the state was just basically or seems to be Chavez's state, a, a conspiracy, a, a, an illegal conspiracy, a violent conspiracy. We haven't mentioned America so far. America, and we've done some shows on it, America has much stricter laws when it comes to money laundering um, and certainly Europe. But you had a piece recently on a, uh, the U.S. accusing an ex-Apple engineer of stealing trade secrets and fleeing to China. We haven't mentioned China either. I wonder whether you mentioned that the 21st century began in 2015, whether one could conceivably argue that it began earlier with the American invasion of Iraq and the way in which they also privatized the war and you had the rise of these warlords, maybe not quite as illegal as, as Prizogin, but similar in some ways. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess you can sort of uh, cut it either way. You could say um, you could definitely date it to um, the, the the war in Iraq. But I think, you know, the, the war in um, Syria and the consequence of that and the Western response was very much um, because of what happened in Iraq. And, you know, you had a sort of Western um, sort of uh, political consensus, which had was hugely war fatigued from the war in Iraq and, Af- and the war in Afghanistan, and also sort of still reeling from the 2008 financial crisis. But um, it's sort of it. It very much. I know it's interesting you say that you know the rules on money laundering are stricter in um, the United States. I mean, all of this stuff is just. Um, it's very. It's complicated. You know, this is to a certain extent. You know, one of the things I just think is an interesting general theme is you know a, around a fifth. You know, we don't know exactly, but around a fifth of global GDP is the black market. It's off the books. You know, it's just this sort of thing we know exists but it doesn't show up in statistics and it's not that governments can't very easily control it and so you know there are things obviously governments do we have laws we have law enforcement but there is just um this is a constant thing and i think um it's just about how that sort of shadow dimension in in the, in the global economy is being used at any one time finally uh, miles this is fascinating stuff and, and creepy worrying stuff too I mean, your book is complicated. There's a lot there, a lot of characters, a lot of moving parts. One of those parts is Jack Kelly, a policeman, um, trying to address this. Are, are there any prescriptive arguments in the book? Are you suggesting that given that 20% of the world's economy is illegal and much of that is violent, what, what should we do here? Do we need new international organizations? Do we need more books like yours? Well, I, I, I think I was very careful to not be prescriptive in the book um, and to sort of present um, the the lives and the stories of these people, you know, each of whom sort of had believed in an institution and um, a value set. And that institution sort of in different ways betrays or destroys them or at least disappoints them. But I think um, there are lots of lessons that can be learned from those stories. But there is also just a sort of element of um, audacity and impossibility to ever you can't stop this stuff you know it's like when jack kelly is sort of sat who is you know this brilliant investigator is mapping out his targets and trying to figure out you know which which criminal conspiracy he can pursue to build a case there is almost an audacity to that because it's endless once you arrest that person uh you know someone else will come um that's not to say it's hopeless because clearly there are there are prescriptive things that governments can do and things about money laundering and you know sort of uh cross-border financial flows and also just sort of like collaboration uh which is really important it's something which does happen behind the scenes a lot you know it doesn't get that much attention but law enforcement agencies around the world have got a lot better at working with each other because they know that they can't combat these threats by just working on their own if you have a big crime group in you know, France or I don't know, or Ireland, you know, they're not necessarily going to be in those countries and the local police can only do so much. And so they started to work much better with um, their counterparts around the world. And that is something which is tangible and leads to, you know, better results.